Our sermon today will be taken from Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 to 10. This is the word of God. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teach. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever one saw that will he also reap. For the one who saw to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who saw to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. This says the Lord. Amen. Good morning, friends. Covenant City Church, it's great to be back with you here. Two more sermons in the book of Galatians. Two more sermons. You've been through five chapters so far of this incredible little letter by Paul. Paul has so far gone through uh, the basics of the gospel, that there's only one gospel, that there's only one way to which you could be saved, one way to God, one way through Jesus Christ, that the gospel is not primarily about your own obedience, the gospel is not primarily about your own righteousness. The gospel instead is a denial of the self, a denial of who you are, a denial of your own righteousness, a denial that you can gain the faithfulness of God through your own works, that you can gain his favor through yourself. And he's established this over and over again. There's one gospel. And in this letter, he has argued against the uh, legalists the legalism of the Judaizers who argue that you have to follow the Old Testament law for you to once again be saved, to be in the covenant community of God, to be under God's favor. That somehow circumcision or uncircumcision, all the Jewish customs and traditions and the Old Testament laws make you favorable towards God. And Paul argues against that. He argues against that strongly. We've seen that before. And salvation is by Christ. Salvation and righteousness comes through His grace. His Spirit enters into you and conforms you to Himself so that you can now walk in Him and bear fruit. True fruit, true lasting fruit that is inward and not outward. And we've been through five chapters of this and now we've gone through to the end. The very last chapter, Galatians chapter 6, uh, verses 1 to 10. And here, right, if you're like me, sometimes when you're reading through uh, the letters of Paul and you get to the end, you kind of, kind of glance over it. Because you've been through the meaty stuff, you've even been through, you know, the, the commands of Paul, the really rigorous uh, imperatives after he's gone through all the theology, right? And somehow, maybe you get to the last chapter of Paul, and you get to his little greetings, his little advices to this particular church, and sometimes we just glance over it, we pass over it without even really thinking about it. But, man, I really want to argue with you today. This is a tough text. This is a really tough text. And as I was preparing for this sermon, I was struck by 
how incredibly offensive this might be to this church, to Jakarta. And I come before you with great fear and trembling with this text because I do really think that if we don't pass over this, if we actually just slow down and take a look at this, you're going to be really surprised and shocked because I think this goes against your most basic intuitions about what church is, what the gospel is, what faith in Christ is, what salvation means. Just take a look at a few examples. We have already a lot of questions from the very get-go, right? In the very first verse, it says, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit. What does that mean to be spiritual? Right? In a city like Jakarta, everybody claims to be spiritual. You know, if you're doing yoga, you're a spiritual person, right? You claim to be spiritual, but you're not religious. If you're spiritual, maybe you've had a few supernaturalistic experiences, right? Especially in this sort of city. What does it mean to be spiritual? Look at verse 2. He says, carry one another's burdens, bear each other's burdens. In this way, you shall fulfill the law of Christ. Just think about that. You shall fulfill the law of Christ. Wasn't the law already fulfilled? Paul, I thought you've covered in five chapters that the law has already been fulfilled for you, that the law has been completely accomplished, that the law has been completely obeyed on your behalf. In what way, then, will we fulfill the law of Christ? These are confusing things that Paul is saying, and if we don't slow down, we may miss them. And this is even more offensive to Baran Jakarta ears, three more verses here, right? Look at chapter 6, verse 4. It says, let each person examine his own work, and then he can take pride in himself. He will boast only in himself alone and not boast in someone else, not compare himself with others. You can boast in yourself. I thought the gospel was about grace. I thought the gospel was about boasting in Christ alone, right? We just sang that in our hymns, right? Let us never boast in anything else but in the cross of Christ alone. All my righteousness, I count for nothing. Paul says in chapter 6 or 4, you can boast in yourself. Hmm. Chapter 6, verse 6. My goodness. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the teacher of the word. Are saying amen, right? Especially in this sort of city, right? We're so sensitive to that, right? I mean, we, we see in channels like TVN, we see in lots of churches throughout the city, and you know, even in our own hearts in this in this church, right? A fear that we as preachers of the gospel could use it for our own advantage. Take advantage of the congregant member, tell them to give everything to the church. God will bless you tenfold, 77 times, or something like that. If you just give your watch, your car, your everything that you have to the pastor, everything goes straight to the pastor's pockets. Is Paul giving any ground for the prosperity gospel? Chapter 6, verse 6. Paul, you've gone through five chapters of such rigorous, grace-filled theology, and you get to the end, and you sound like you may be giving credence to those who say you have to be rich and wealthy, and you have to give a lot to the church for you to be saved. And yet we could read it and pass it by and not think us a moment about it. And chapter 6, verse 10, look at this. As we have every opportunity, let us do good to all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. In our secular uh, context, right, we have a very clear and simple message. Love everyone. Do good to every person. 
Don't do them harm. Show no partiality. Don't show favoritism. Don't show special treatment. Everybody's equal. That's the secular gospel. And yet now Paul is suddenly telling us, sure, of course you do good to everybody, but especially to the church. Sounds exclusive. Sounds uh, like special privileging. Sounds like favoritism. Sounds like partiality. I thought God loves everyone equally, doesn't he? So, uh, as I prepare for this sermon this morning, I was uh, quite nervous because I was, I was looking at this text and I was thinking, these are a bunch of truth bombs that I've got to bring to you to this, this morning. But I want to argue now that even though these could sound offensive, that these could sound counterintuitive, alienating even, if we take a look at it in light of the theology that Paul has established in, verse, in chapters 1 all the way to chapter 5, if we, if we see it under the categories that he's already laid out for us, if we see it under this theology of union with Christ, that the gospel is about being one with Christ, about what he's done, and you being engrafted to him, and you as the church is a signal body, and he is your head, he is the vine, you are the branches, maybe it could start to sound a little bit more comprehensible. Maybe it all cohere together. And that's my hope this morning. Here are the three points for this morning. And these three points, I hope, will illuminate these seemingly offensive verses. The first point is the nature of organic growth and union with Christ. The second is the effects of organic growth and union with Christ. And the third is the source of organic growth and union with Christ. The nature of organic growth and union with Christ, the effects of organic growth and union with Christ, and the sources of it. With that being said, let's pray one more time. Father, we beg for your mercy as we come to you this morning. We are stricken in awe and fear, Father, as we come through such rigorous, demanding, counterintuitive commands. And we also are aware, Father, of our own shortcomings as we come before you. We were unworthy unworthy for you to even address us, unworthy for you to call us by name. We know of all of our secrets in public and in, in, in hiddenness, Father, from you. But nothing, Father, is private to you. You've seen all things, and yet you love us, yet you call us, yet you came down and you sent your Son, and you lived in our place, and you died the death we should have died. And now you intercede for us in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord God, for that amazing truth, and let us now be reminded of our union with you so that we may go through this text. We may understand all of these passages and show how they all cohere together as we are united to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Herman Bavink. Of course, I always mention him today. Herman Bavink, 19th century Dutch theologian. Uh, he wrote a little booklet in 1904 to 1908. And in this little booklet, it's entitled The Christian Worldview. It's a 105-page booklet, and he sets out a summary of what he thinks the Christian worldview is. What is the basic contours? What's the basic distinctness? What makes the Christian view of the world different from non-Christian views of the world? And in the opening pages of that booklet, he argues that essentially, essentially, at its very core, the Christian worldview is what he calls an organic worldview. The Christian worldview is an organic worldview. We have a Christian, organic way of seeing the world. We are organic beings in an organic world with an organic church. We have to live organically in unity with ourselves. 
But just think, think about this for a second. Okay, for a second. We have an organic view of the self. If you're a Christian, right, we argue that the true ideal self is a united self, that your feelings and your thinking, your reasoning, all of these things should be brought under unity under Christ, right? The very opposite of this is Romans 7. We know that under the conditions of sin, right, often we do the things that we know we're not supposed to do. We feel things that we know we're not supposed to, but yet our, our reason tells us we should feel otherwise. We have a conflicted self at the core of who we are, right? There's a new man and an old self. And that's not the way it's supposed to be. Bobbing argues that if you're truly an organic self, you're united to Christ, you are one with Him, you have a unified living whole. And he envisions a future where you are organically connected, you are organically unified such that you feel exactly what you're supposed to feel in conformity to what you know is true. Your reasoning is in conformity to the law of God. You feel that you love that law. You feel that you love what you're reasoning about. You, you will all the very things that you're feeling for and thinking for. It's a unified organic self. Bobbing argues that we live in an organic world. That he envisions a future where uh, everything that you see in the world, whether in every field of life, in academia, in business, in law, in politics, in the church, in family, in life, in relationships, there's a connectedness, there's a harmony to it all. A harmony that we don't yet see today. A harmony that is completely disconnected today. Right? We go to school and we hear different things than we do in church. We go to church and we go outside of church and during lunch we hear different things from our friends. We go back to our homes, we hear different things from our families. Our families are disconnected from our churches. What happens in politics is disconnected from what happens in the business world. Even if you're prospering in the business world maybe, there's some things in the political realm that's, that's, that's stopping you from doing full justice in your, in your business, right? And you're finding relationships that are hard and difficult. But Bobby envisions a, an organic world that is in conformity and unified as a singular whole, interconnected, harmonious. And at the core of it all, Bobbing says, is an organic church. A church, a single organic body that is unified to Christ. A single body that could say, you know, if you're a single body, the eye doesn't say to its feet, I don't need you. The feet doesn't say to its eyes, I don't need you. Every single member with its gifts, its talents, all of the nourishing that it gets from the Word of Christ is formed together. Christ is the head. We're engrafted to Him. And that's the basic view of the world that Christianity offers. It's an organic vision. And we, of course, we don't see this today, right? We have a mechanical view of things. The opposite of an organic view of things is a mechanical view of things. Uh, I've given all those examples about the mechanical self, the disjointed self, the disjointed view of things that you encounter throughout the world, right? We want, we want, and especially in our millennial generations, we want meaningful, deep, lasting relationships and families and connectedness. Yet we also value autonomy and freedom. The very things that inhibits meaningful and deep, lasting relationships. Those two things don't organically go together. You can't have full autonomy and expect meaningful relationships. They, they can't go together. They're mechanically attached to one another. And yet, our secular worldview in this world preaches that, right? 
We want deep, lasting meaning and friendships and, and, and impact. We want to make an impact in the world, right, in this generation. We talk about that all the time. And yet we argue we came from nothing and we are going to nothing. Nobody's going to remember your work. You're going to die. There is no eternal life. There is no soul. And yet we will talk all about impact. You, you want a meaningful job. You want a meaningful career. And yet we say to ourselves, we came from an evolutionary process that says you're going to be nothing at the end of the day. That's a mechanical worldview. It doesn't go together. It doesn't cohere together. It doesn't connect together, right? In a seamless and, and, and united way. And so with this understanding, Christianity is organic. Christianity says that the church is not merely an aggregate of individuals. Christianity says that you are not a mere self. Christianity says that there's something supernatural going on and engrafting that we as a church are one body and united into Christ and that even as yourself, you are not living for yourself. You're not alone. You're not the only person animating who you are. You are controlled by something outside of you, something that breaks into your life, that connects you to something bigger, that connects you to something bigger, connects you to Christ, such that who you are is in conformity to Him, and who you are is connected to His larger body, the church. And so Christianity is an organic view of things. It's an inherently supernatural view of things. As we're going to see today, the church is no mere collection of individuals, it's no mere club or, or, or hobby house. It's no mere social gathering. Something supernatural is going on. The reason why you're here, the reason why we're connected, the reason why we sing the hymns that we do, the reason why we preach the word, there's something supernatural that ties it all up together. And only if you view these things, do these commands start to make sense. Only if you view it all in light of this organic union with Christ. Look at Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. This may be uh, in uh, the PowerPoint here. Paul's already established this organic view of union with Jesus Christ that binds us all together as Christians and as uh, united selves. He says in Galatians 2.20, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The Christ who lives in me. Paul is saying with that word, that simple word, but there are two opposing ways to live. Before Christ happens to you, you lived on your own and there's nothing outside of you. You were dead in your sins unless Christ enters into you and now he lives in you. And he repeats this at least three other times. I'm just going to call this from Philippians chapter 3 and two other passages from the book of Galatians. And this is all in the PowerPoint as well. These two basic antitheses or oppositions with the word but. And I want us to see this to, to, to really be clear about union with Christ. Look at Philippians chapter 3 verses 7 to 8. He says there, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the laws of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Notice that union language, in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but, the opposition, that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So there's a righteousness that could come from yourself, a false righteousness that you're trying to conjure up for yourself through the law, or a righteousness that depends from God, a righteousness that depends on faith, a righteousness that, that is found in Him, in Christ, that makes our own righteousness look like rubbish. Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, and this is now 
uh, bring it back to Paul's opponents, the uh, legalists who argue that the Old Testament circumcision law is necessary for salvation. He says, in Christ Jesus, notice the union language of in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but, again, the opposition, only faith working through love. Only faith working through love. Again, the opposition is between this mechanical obeying of, of just mere rule-keeping for the sake of rule-keeping, a, a, a false, extrinsic kind of righteousness that depends on a checklist of circumcision and not circumcision, or an internal faith that works through love. That's the basic opposition in Galatians 5. It's the basic opposition we saw in Philippians 3. That same language is repeated in Galatians 6, verse 14 to 15. He says there this, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me. Again, notice the union language. Somehow in the crucifixion of Christ, you were crucified with him. And I to the world, his life, his death and resurrection is counted as yours, as conforming to you, as you conforming to it. And look at verse 15. He repeats the language that we see in Galatians 5, 6. Neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation, another opposition, a new creation. Now, if you put Galatians 5, 6 and 6, 15 together, we see something really interesting. Galatians 5, 6 and Galatians 6, 15 says on the one side that there is a, a, a faith, a legalism, a, a a works righteousness that counts fact-checking and rule-keeping and, and checklisting as a way of, of garnering your own righteousness and in opposition to that, a faith working through love and a new creation. Galatians 5.6 and Galatians 6.15 coordinate one another. And so that other side of things, the faith working through love, is indicative as a sign of you being an entirely new creation. If you are a new creation, if you really are united to Christ, you're conforming yourself to Him, the Spirit conforms you, you walk in that Spirit, you will have faith and it will work through love. If you are the one who has faith working through love, you're a new creation. This faith is not something extrinsic to you. It's not a mechanical attachment to who you are. It's not an addendum to who you are. It's not an appendix to who you are. It's something intrinsic to you. Tazar preached a great sermon on Galatians uh, 5, 16 and 25. I really enjoyed listening to it. And he argued that this organic attachment, this growth in you is internal. It's inevitable. It's integral. It's there because it's there, he says. It's there because no matter where you are, it defines who you are. You don't change on the basis of who you happen to be with. You don't change on the basis of where, where you are or, or the circumstances in your life. Something that is internal to you guides you. And it illuminates everything that you do. I heard an analogy given to me yesterday, actually, and I can't resist uh, not using it. Um, the Christian faith, thanks to uh, our new friend here, the Christian faith, it's more about you being Spider-Man than Batman. This is not a debate about Marvel versus DC. I, I enjoy both movies quite equally. The Christian faith is more like Spider-Man than Batman. Think about this basic fact between the two superheroes. They're both superheroes, but Batman, 
depends upon his gadgets, his tools, to be who he is. His identity as, as Batman could be replaced if somebody else acquired the same sort of gadgets, sort of, sort of tools, the same sort of skills, right? That's who Batman is. In other words, Batman depends upon what he puts onto himself, and later he puts it off and he's no longer Batman, right? His identity as Batman is a mechanical attachment to who he is. But think about Spider-Man. Spider-Man gets bitten by a spider. It changes his biological makeup, right? He wakes up and suddenly he's buff. <laughs> he's got an eight-pack, and you know, I remember that scene of Tobey Maguire. He's like squirting, you know, his webs everywhere, and he's, he's amazing. He's climbing through walls. And guess what? He wasn't wearing a costume. He was wearing a little hoodie, and he was discovering his powers, you know? And when he's wearing the costume, it doesn't add to anything who he is. It just expresses who he is. Who he is as a superhero, it's, it's intrinsic to who he is. It's a biological makeup. It's completely changed and different. He's what? A new, a new creation in a spider way. But for us, we are a new creation in Christ. This obedience is not something extrinsic to who you are. You know, we make New Year's resolutions, and if you are uh, a consumerist with respect to your faith, maybe you'll go through Lent, and then you'll say, I'm going to give up Facebook uh, for this month. Or I'm going to go to church earlier for this month. Or I'm going, to, I'm going to give up fast food. Or I'm going to give up alcohol. I'm going to give up smoking. I'm going to give up partying for like a month. And then you feel really good about yourself. And then you binge for the rest of the year. Because you know, I had that really good month one day. And that's, that's, that's what I'm going to do. I had a checklist. And I could balance it out. Right? I do that with my own diet. i got to admit. But when you do that with your own righteousness, when you do that with your own morality, notice that's a mechanical obedience. There's something you think you could put on and you put off again. It's not something that is expressive of who you are. And, and the scary part is that could look a lot the same as a real Christian. As a real Christian. So in that light, Galatians 6 verse 2. In this way you shall fulfill the law of Christ. The law now no longer something outside of you. The law that is in you. A law could signify a list of commands that is on a piece of paper or in the Old Testament, a list of commands, right, on tablets of stone. But a law can also talk about a principle that governs things. Law of gravity governs the way the world is and the physical laws of, of, of how everything is, right? Your body functions the way it is according to a physical law, a natural law. But the law of Christ is no longer something extrinsic to you, right? It's something that actually conforms who you are. And so the Christian faith is not just about Christ fulfilling that law for you, but he will now also fulfill that law in you. He and his spirit enters into you and bids you and will shape you in such a way that you will walk in him. And your life will be changed. It's not mechanical. It's organic. It's not Batman. It's Spider-Man. And in this way, then, keeping in step with the Spirit, you know, uh, completing the work that's begun in you, Galatians uh, 5, 16, 25, Philippians 2, all of these things is, is communicating this basic reality that your salvation is not merely about having the status of righteousness, but it's also about conforming to righteousness. You get your status of righteousness by grace, and your walk in obedience in light of that is also by grace. Both of these things are a gift. And Galatians 6 verse 8 brings us to a stark contrast. He says there, 
For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But, again, notice the opposition. The one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Two ways. No sitting on the fence. No waiting till tomorrow. Not up to you. And the scary part about this is, who are Paul's opponents in Galatians? Who are the ones reaping in the flesh? Prostitutes? Tax collectors? Drunkards? Of course, those are all works of the flesh. But, who's he arguing against? Religiousness? Uh, uh, self-righteousness? In other words, those who, those who go to church every week? those who look very holy, those who keep the law really well. Who is he talking about here? The legalists. And he says that the legalists, despite their outward, extrinsic, mechanical obedience to the law, are still reaping the flesh, not in the spirit. And so notice in the PowerPoint, I think I say, or maybe it's not there, it's an antithesis of, or an opposition of two moralities. It's not about immorality and morality, there are two ways of seeking righteousness. First is, again, the mechanical obedience of, of the Pharisees and the law-abiding Judaizers and legalists. And the second is an, an intrinsic part of who you are, an organic growth, a walking in the Spirit of Christ, completing that law. That's the first point, the nature of organic growth. Again, it's intrinsic to you. You're united to Christ. You're one body in Him. There's something supernatural going on. More like Spider-Man, not like Batman. Second point is the effects of organic growth. We see three effects in this passage. Three effects that show us what does it look like. Of course, we've already seen the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, but Paul gives us more concrete commands that show us indicators of what it looks like if you truly are united to Christ, if you truly are walking in the Spirit, if you truly are reaping in the Spirit and sowing through it. First, you will be concerned about the fruits you bear and how they bear on your joy. Galatians 6.1b says, keep watching yourself. 6.4, it says, let each one test his own work, and that his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. In other words, you will be concerned about your own personal holiness. It occupies your mind. You know what you're ultimately concerned about by, by what you spend your time thinking about when nobody's watching. What do you think about? What bothers you? What keeps you up at night? What do you pray about? What are your priorities? And Paul is saying here, primarily your priorities is to be keeping watching yourself, testing the fruit, ensuring that you're vigilant, that you're not asleep, you're not ready, assuring that you are truly keeping in step with the Spirit. And it is in this context that Galatians 6.4 begins to make sense to us. Galatians 6.4 says that let each one test his own work and that his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not his neighbor. Coordinate Galatians 6.4 with a passage we just read a moment ago, Galatians 6.14. It says there, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Is Paul contradicting himself? In what way can we boast in our own work, but at the same time boast in nothing else except in the cross of Christ? If we take a look at this in terms of our union with Christ, what is Paul saying? If you truly are united to Christ, 
everything that you do is Christ. Such that when you boast in yourself, let it be a boasting that is nothing other than your fruits in the Spirit of Christ. It is not a boast in your own righteousness, but it's a boasting in yourself that says, the sources of my, my righteousness, the sources of my progress and holiness, all of these things come from Christ, such that there is no opposition between boasting in self and boasting in Christ. There is no opposition between your work and God's work, right? Philippians 2, uh, 1 to 11 says it very starkly there that you should work in fear and trembling because it is God who works in you. Paul never sees an opposition between your will and God's will. There is a congruence between the two. There's a compatibilist uh, vision of, of your will and God that you all work together such that if you're truly Christian, because you're a new creation, everything you do reflects who he is. And there is a sense in which you can say like Paul does, follow me as I follow Christ. Union with Christ makes sense of Galatians 6 verse 4. So resist either or thinking. Resist either or thinking. If you're united to Christ, you're no longer totally depraved. You are who you are in Jesus Christ. Second effect, you will love the body of Christ, the church. Notice then that Galatians uh, 6 verse 1, it says that you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And you are in verse 2, it says, to bear each other's burdens, not weary of being good. And chapter 6 verse 10, it says, do good, especially to those who are of the household of faith. The Spirit of Christ makes the church into a single body. The Spirit of Christ engrafts you into that body, and you will be concerned about one another. You know, I was having a conversation just a week ago with somebody, and um, we hear it often said, you know, I don't need to go to church. I can watch YouTube. You know, my favorite preacher is John Piper and Tim Keller, right? I could listen to Tim Keller all day on YouTube. It's fantastic. It's HD now, right? And uh, John Piper sings loud when I'm taking a shower, right? And I could listen that to, to his sermons all day. I don't need to go to church. I don't need to go to church. Or some of you maybe say, I'd rather go to small groups and not go to church because I learn more in small groups anyway because I can engage with people. Because going to church is just another gathering. You just hear, you know, some teaching, Okay, you could think that way if you think that church is a mere sociological fact. You could think that way if the church gathering to you is just another hobby club or another sociological uh, uh, gathering of a society or a community. But try to take a look at it in terms of union with the body of Christ. He is your head, and every single member of this church represents his body. Can the eye say to the body, I don't need to come back to it. I could function on my own. And it's amazing to me. I would hear often as well, you know, I feel so dry, gray in my spiritual walk. I feel like I know what I need to do, but I haven't been progressing. I haven't been motivated. I have, I've been falling back to my old sins. And I would ask, have you been in a community that cares about you, that keeps you accountable, that values your giftings, that contributes to your well-being, that cares about your holiness, that makes sure that you're taken care of? And oftentimes the answer is no. And no wonder. You can't live outside the body. 
And we as a church, this puts our priorities into place, right? It says restore those who are wrongdoing. They restore him in the faith. In other words, care about his holiness. Care about her holiness. Sometimes we could ask ourselves, as church, what do we care about? How do we take care of our members? Of course, we do things like mercy ministries. We, we give to financial and bodily needs. But your primary mission here as a church, care for one another in the faith, restore people, care primarily by their holiness. That's the direction. And that makes sense of the offensiveness of Galatians 6, verse 10. Why do you care about the church more so than the outside world? They're one body. I've mentioned this to you before. If you've heard me preach multiple times, maybe you've, you've heard me say it, right? We come as Christians, and we have a certain Christian lingo, you know? We come and every Sunday, and we say, hey, happy Sunday, brother. Happy Sunday, sister, you know? <laughs> Even in text message, man, brother, how are you today? Sister, how are you today? How's your walk in the Lord? And maybe some of you don't think that way. Maybe it's just me, and I do that. But uh, it's a real thing, and Paul repeats this over and over again. You know, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We're together in Him. We are one family. We're adopted into the same community, right? Guys, when we call each other friends and, and brothers and sisters, it's not just a mere sociological lingo, again. There's a bond between us as a church that runs deeper than blood. That Christ could say that he came not to unite families, not to bring unity to natural families, but he says what? To bring division. That brother and fathers would be divided. That mothers and, and daughters would be divided. That brothers and sisters of organic blood families would be divided. So that they would be what? Engrafted into a new family. Why do we care more about the household of faith? Because the spiritual family lasts forever. And Christ continues to be your head. A lot of things I could say here. Resist gossip. Again, it's not, uh, gossip, uh, uh, this is just a brief aside. In Jakarta, right, we care so much about smoking and drinking. We care so much about whether you're partying in the weekend or how you live your life in terms of the substances that you consume, even though Jesus says what makes you unclean is not what enters you but what comes out of you, right? We never really talk about gossip. Gossip, I think, is, is, is a necessary implication of this, that we resist it, because gossip could make it seem like you care about the person, as if you want to restore them into the faith, when actually, when you're gossiping about somebody, you're putting them down for your own self-benefit. Because when you're gossiping about somebody, you say something behind that person's back, you don't confront them directly, and you do that to other people so that you can say subtly, not directly, subtly, that person is doing all these things, and I'm so much better. You put another person down. But guess what? Oftentimes when we gossip, it sounds caring. It sounds like we care about that person, that we want to restore them back into the faith. And Jakarta is a gossiping community. Jakarta really is. Resist gossip. And, and another implication of this, again, these are two sides. Resist gossip. Second implication, what does it mean to be a spiritual Christian? A spiritual Christian is not someone with momentary feelings of exuberance and, and, and flooding happiness. It's not about remembering a particular past where you believe God had spoken to you. 
being a spiritual person is not about putting aside the Bible and hearing God directly talk to you before you sleep or about having mystical visions and dreams. Being a spiritual person is about the mundane, ordinary facts of life. Do you love one another? Do you bear each other's burdens? Do you resist gossip? Things that people don't notice about. Do you give to the church? Do you have marriages that are functional? Do you feel like you're in a job that you're content with? Are you content no matter what happens? Do you have an abiding peace in you? Do you do things in a way that reflects Christ? That's what it means to be a spiritual person. Final effect, you will love the word of Christ. You love him. And therefore, you love his word. And this is the offensive of Galatians 6, verse 6. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Sure, this is not the prosperity gospel. Paul has, has gone through enough in this letter for you to know that this is not about just giving blindly. This isn't about you gaining your own righteousness or your own salvation by giving to the pastor This is about you as a believer in the Spirit. He's established in Galatians chapter 5. This is about you as one who depends on on Christ. He's established in Galatians chapter 2. This is about you who's denied the flesh. This is about you who's prioritizing the Word of God, walking in the Spirit. And now you care about His Word. Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Notice the organic imagery of that. How is this body nourished? How is the body alive? On what does it feed? The word of Christ. And if that's the case, you will love teachers of the good news. That presupposes a number of things. One of the things that it presupposes is you actually know who's a teacher and a a proper teacher, a teacher who actually teaches the word. Not a teacher who teaches about his own fancies or something he made up, you know, this morning over breakfast. Not a teacher that's just telling you what to do because he thinks that you should do it but a teacher who actually preaches the word of Christ. And it puts a priority to you when you're looking for churches. Maybe some of you are members here, maybe others of you who aren't. If, if this is something you're considering about going to church, what do you prioritize when you go to church? Maybe you, you would go after a Sunday and you would talk to people you feel in yourself. The sermon was great, but, you know, the chairs are kind of sturdy. We kind of, like, get up and get down a little bit too much. Or, you know, but, but the sound system isn't great, so I don't know about that. Or it's your primary question. Does that church preach the word of Christ? And I've mentioned this before. Covenant City Church, may we never depart from that. Never shall we depart from teaching the body of Christ, the word of Christ, that it could be prioritized in our lives so that we could grow in holiness, nourishing the body, so we could cut through the fog. We don't need a smoke machine. We don't need the glitz and glamour. We don't need a fancy building. We don't need a community that, you know, that, that is exclusive or anything like that. What matters? Are we preaching the word of God? And are we growing in holiness? Are we preaching grace? So those are the three impacts that we see in this passage. And I hope, again, all the things that initially were offensive to you became a little bit more comprehensible. When you boast in yourself, boast in a manner that shows who you are in Christ. 
when you give all things to the church, when you give all things to the teachers, it is because you love the Word of God. When you care primarily about the household of faith, it's because you realize you have a new spiritual family as a single body now. And finally, my last point, and I promise it's the shortest point, as it normally is, the source of this organic growth, the Spirit of Christ. Your growth in the gospel comes from outside of you. Your growth in the gospel is part of the gospel itself. When you grow in holiness, it's not just merely about being thankful for what Jesus had done for you. It is about you receiving the call of God. He inbreaks into your life, and suddenly you work all your priorities around that. You don't get to set the agenda. You can't control it in a sense. It's becoming natural to you that you obey God. Suddenly, you're, you're, you're reordering your life, and suddenly you're, you're making sure you don't work on Saturdays so you can come on Sundays. Suddenly, you understand that you need to go to the Bible because you feel dry and, 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 and you feel incomplete without it. Suddenly, you crave for Christian fellowship. You crave for a Christian community. You feel empty without it. You feel, and you know that something is wrong. Your conscience haunts you, and you can't sleep at night because of it. Do you have the Spirit? Why have you been going to church? Do you believe that deep inside of you that, that you've been coming because this is something merely enriching to you? This is just something that you do on a weekend, something that makes you feel better after a really rough Friday and Saturday night? Is this a mere New Year's resolution that, so that you can, you can you know, keep a list and feel good about taking all the boxes? Do you really have the Spirit? Do you realize what Christ has done? And do you know that the righteousness of Christ is not merely conferred to you as a status, but conforming of you, that you can't help but love him, his church. You can't help but seek holiness. I pray that you will look for him now. If you don't have yet the Spirit, if you feel God nudging you this morning, the Spirit invoking your name, do not resist. Soften your heart. Believe in Him and let Him be Lord as He already is, whether you like it or not. Let us pray in closing. Father, we thank You for Your grace. Many of us come before You as Christians and we can only remember that moment or that process of time where we, we thought about things differently. We were living entirely different lives. We were, we were living an old self. We're not yet a new creation. And suddenly everything became anew. We realized, Lord God, that we were never good enough for you, but yet you came down and you made us good. You took upon the cross because we deserve death, and yet you died for us. You died in our place. And when you resurrected, you gave us your spirits so that we could now live in conformity to Christ. So your life is now genuinely ours, and every day we can grow, and the world and the church could see Christ in us, the gentleness, the love, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ characterizes who we are. Let this be our longing as a church, and if we're not Christians this morning, I pray, I pray, Father, that you would call us anew. Help us not resist. Soften our hearts. Move us into obedience. Subdue our rebellious wills so that we may obey you. And say, Father, that we will deny our own righteousness and trust in the law and righteousness of Christ. 
pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.